This evening we're going to start looking at the book of Lamentations, so it would be helpful if you were able to turn there. It's page 823 in the Church Bibles, and if you're using one of the larger print Bibles, 1276. Lamentations is just after Jeremiah, which is big, so if you find Jeremiah, it's right after that. Jeremiah is a big book. Lamentations is a pretty short book, just five chapters. Each chapter of the book is a separate poem. Now, we don't know who wrote these poems. The prophet Jeremiah is one possibility, but it is just a possibility. The book itself gives no indication who wrote it. But what we do know is that these five poems are about a ruined city. The city of Jerusalem, which is also referred to as Zion. And in fact, these poems are about not just the city, they're concerned with the wider area around the city, the whole region of Judah and the southern part of Israel. And the focus of these five poems isn't just the heaps of rubble in Jerusalem and Judah, the focus is also on the people who are living in those ruins. Focuses on those who've experienced the devastation and the ruin of Jerusalem. This morning we heard from Haggai about rebuilding. Well, the book of Lamentations is dealing with things a stage back from Haggai, when the devastation is still fresh and when rebuilding isn't even on the horizon, really. Now, in other places, the Bible gives us the historical details of the devastation. Again, we heard about some of that this morning. Jerusalem and Judah were devastated in 586 BC, so almost 500 years before, 600 years before Christ. That destruction was accomplished by King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. They besieged the city of Jerusalem. It was a prolonged siege. It was a very painful time for the people in the city. Eventually, the city fell. The Babylonians broke through the city walls, they destroyed the temple, they destroyed the palace in Jerusalem, and they took many of the people away into exile in Babylon. Now, the details of that are given in 2 Kings chapters 24 and 25, and also in the book of Jeremiah chapter 52. But the book of Lamentations is not so focused on the history of the situation. This book is focused on the emotion of it. A lament is an expression of grief. It's an outpouring of grief. And the poems in this book certainly do express grief and sorrow and desperation. But actually, they do more than that. These poems also bring the situation to God. They pour it all out to him and they ask him to respond. So these aren't just laments. They're also actually petitions to God. And they are guides for you and me today. Because we are also people who live in the ruins. Now, we are not surrounded by piles of rubble, of course. But it is true that we live in a society ruined and devastated by sin. And by the consequences of sin. There's lots of material prosperity and comfort in our city in Pelsall and England, but there is devastation as well. There is financial poverty, but even more so, there is spiritual and emotional poverty in our city. Broken lives, broken families, broken minds and hearts are all around us. We know that. We see it every day. You and I can see the devastation and actually, it impacts on us in various ways. And so lamentations can help us in our own ruined city today. One thing we need to know about this book that deals with brokenness and devastation, it's one of the most carefully constructed books of the Bible. Each of the five chapters is a complete poem, and the first four of these poems are what we call acrostics. 
What that means is each verse of the poem begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, and so the first verse of each poem begins with the first letter of the alphabet. Verse 2 begins with the second letter of the alphabet. Verse 3 begins with the third letter, and so on. The third poem is slightly different. We'll not worry about that until we get to it. But just for now, we can notice, although this book is dealing with incredibly chaotic circumstances, the book itself is not chaotic. It is very carefully ordered. And as we go through it, we'll think about the significance of that. But for now, with that introduction in mind, let's read chapter one, the first of these five poems. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly, she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. She dwells among the nations. She finds no resting place. All who pursue her have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to her appointed festivals. All her gateways are desolate. Her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she is in bitter anguish. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captive before the foe. All the splendor has departed from daughter Zion. Her princes are like deer that find no pasture. In weakness they have fled before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and wandering, Jerusalem remembers all the treasures that were hers in days of old. When her people fell into enemy hands, there was no one to help her. Her enemies looked at her and laughed at her destruction. Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high, he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands, they were woven together. They've been hung on my neck, and the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep, and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. 
Zion stretches out her hands, but there's no one to comfort her. The Lord has decreed for Jacob that his neighbors become his foes. Jerusalem has become an unclean thing among them. The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and young women have gone into exile. I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there is only death. People have heard my groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my distress. They rejoice at what you have done. May you bring the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my sins. My groans are many and my heart is faint. This is God's word. And it describes life in the ruins. The 22 verses of this poem divide neatly in half. The first 11 verses help us think about caring for the ruined city. And the second 11 verses help us think about when we're part of the ruined city. First in verses 1 to 11, caring for the ruined city. We already know this book is about the fall of Jerusalem and the aftermath of that fall. That's acknowledged in verse 1. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. But as we said earlier, this is not just about piles of rubble. This is about the people who've experienced the devastation of Jerusalem. People who've lost their home. The writer of Lamentations tunes into that human dimension. And he does that by describing the city in personal terms. As a widow, a grieving widow. You can see that in the middle of verse 1. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. So again, we're talking about the devastation of Jerusalem, Zion and the surrounding region of Judah, but this is about more than just fallen city walls. This is not just about a set of dates and facts. This is about the personal suffering of the people of Jerusalem. And so the city is described as a person, a lady who's lost her husband. And there's no downplaying the unpleasantness. There's no skimming over it. It's been a hard fall from greatness down to slavery. And in verse 2, the focus zooms right in on Lady Jerusalem. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there's no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They've become her enemies. Jerusalem is isolated and alone like an abandoned lady with no one to comfort her. The people of Jerusalem and Judah were in a covenant relationship with the Lord God. It was a marriage, really, between the people of Judah and Israel and the Lord. But the people were like a lady who gave herself to other lovers. False gods, foreign nations, and their gods. But those other lovers have been no help to her. They're no help to her now in her distress. Verse 3 says she's gone into exile among the nations, but there's no resting place for her there. Verse 4 mentions her bitter anguish. And verse 5 says the Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. The poet doesn't avoid the hard reality of Jerusalem's sin. 
He knows that her fall and her exile has come because of her sin. What happened to her was not just an unfortunate accident. The Lord has brought Jerusalem's grief. It's the result of generations of willful sin and unfaithfulness. Despite the calls of prophets like Jeremiah and many others. It's important for us to see that because when we talk about caring for the ruined city, we're not talking about the kind of care that ignores uncomfortable truths. In this case, the uncomfortable truth that sin brings bitter, bitter consequences into people's lives. True care and sympathy does not mean that we gloss over that. Now, there's no doubt at all the writer of Lamentations feels deeply for Jerusalem. He cares deeply. And because of that, he's willing to be honest about Jerusalem's sin. He's willing to say that Jerusalem is not the innocent victim of a terrible accident. Her sorrow has come upon her because of her many sins. If you look down in verse 8, the poet says, All the spl- uh, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have all seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. Her filthiness clung to her skirts. She did not consider her future. It's not completely clear how we should understand the details of this uncleanness and nakedness and filthiness. But what is clear is that shame is involved. Sin has brought shame. And true care and sympathy is willing to recognize when somebody's situation involves sin and shame. But even as the writer of Lamentations is showing us that, he also shows us Facing the truth about someone's sin and shame does not mean that we have no compassion. It doesn't mean we turn away from them. The poet doesn't turn away from the ruins of Jerusalem. He continues to look and he continues to listen carefully. In fact, at the end of verse 9 and the end of verse 11, he shows he's been listening carefully by quoting the cries and groans of Jerusalem. Look in the middle of verse 9 and then at the two sets of quote marks in 9 and 11. He says, her fall was astounding. There was none to comfort her. And then he's been listening. Look, Lord, on my affliction, she says, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan as they search for bread. They barter their treasures for food to keep themselves alive. And again, he's been listening to what she's saying. Look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Honesty about somebody's sin and shame does not mean we lose our care and concern for them. Honesty about a society's sin doesn't mean we lose our care and concern. And if we try to pull this together at this point and apply it to the situation we live in today, if we try to apply it to our city, the ruined society that's around us, we can say that as God's people, we are called to care. And true biblical care is not superficial. It doesn't resort to superficial answers, like telling people they're okay. And they should just follow their heart and be who they want to be, and that will make things better. That's a superficial answer. It's an uncaring answer. Because the fact is, our society is enslaved by sin. And its problems are the bitter, bitter results of sin. 
Disobedience to God and failure to listen to God is sin. It results in us doing shameful things, and that brings ruin and devastation. It is not caring to gloss over that. And at the very same time, true biblical care doesn't turn away in disgust. It doesn't wash its hands and abandon the ruins. True biblical care looks carefully. It listens carefully to those who are living in the ruins of sin. It doesn't write off those whose lives are biblically unclean and filthy. True biblical care listens carefully to the groans of those who are unclean. True care recognizes their need of a comforter. Someone has said that what we see in Lamentations is detailed sympathy. It includes the realities of sin and shame. It doesn't ignore those details. But it also notices tears on the cheeks of those who are guilty of sin and shame. It notices the groaning, the bitter anguish. It notices the longing for comfort and rest that's all around us. And as you and I look around us, as we see people who are given over to sin, it's true, they often appear totally shameless about the shameful things they're doing. They seem to be proud of their sin. They seem to glory in it. But if we pay enough attention... Maybe we'll see the anguish behind the bold, brazen exterior that many people have. Maybe behind their desperate attempts to appear satisfied and to appear on top of things, we will hear their longing for comfort and rest. So the book of Lamentations calls us not to superficial judgments, but to detailed sympathy. So we can ask ourselves, do you and I have that kind of detailed sympathy for our neighbors, for our families, our co-workers? Or do we tend to see only their sin and shame? Or only their sadness and need for comfort? Biblical care and sympathy notices both of those. It takes both seriously. Caring for the ruined city means caring about sin and about those ruined by sin. Just as an example of what we're talking about, think of the current situation with transgenderism in our society. The idea that some people are born in the wrong body. And the best thing for them is to change that body to suit how they feel. We hear about that all the time. It's being heavily promoted in our society. And as Christians, we cannot support that thinking. Because it denies the truth that our maker made us male and female. Transgenderism also defies the wisdom of our maker in giving each of us the male or female body that we have. And in fact, the whole push to promote transgenderism brings even more ruin and misery into lives that are already in turmoil. As Christians, we cannot support the God-defying ideology of transgenderism. If we truly care about people, we will be clear about that. And we will also take time to see the individual people who are caught up in all of this. Lost people. People who are desperately trying to find some comfort and rest for themselves. Hoping 
that mutilating their body might finally be the one thing that does the trick for them. True care will lead us to show love and concern for those who are struggling for hope in their lives. People who are being sold a lie by the transgender movement. Maybe they've even gone down the path of having their bodies mutilated to try and look like the other sex. True care will lead us not to write those men and women off if we come into contact with them. True care will lead us to listen to them and talk to them about the fact that they have a maker. That their body was not a mistake. True care will lead us to try and help them trust in the God who made them. And live in the body he gave them. It's just one example. We could apply the same kind of approach to all sorts of ruin that we see in people's lives. The first half of this poem has been an observation of Jerusalem's ruin. We've been given an observation of the situation from the outside. But now in the second half of the poem, it is Jerusalem herself who speaks. We've heard a couple of quotations, but now we hear at length from Jerusalem herself. And these verses help us think about when we are part of the ruined city. Look how the perspective of the poem changes in verse 12. Up to now, it's been the poet looking and listening to Jerusalem. But now in verse 12, we get the view from the inside. Jerusalem herself speaks. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, sent it down into my bones. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, faint all the day long. My sins have been bound into a yoke. By his hands they were woven together. They've been hung on my neck. And the Lord has sapped my strength. He has given me into the hands of those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. What is the most noticeable thing about these words of Jerusalem? The most noticeable thing, I think, is that they focus on the Lord. In the first part of the poem, the poet did mention the Lord and his involvement. We saw that. But now in this section, the Lord is mentioned in nearly every verse. Yes, this part of the poem is still about Jerusalem's suffering and devastation, like the first part of the poem was. But now that Jerusalem herself is speaking, she is clear this has come from God, the Lord. In verse 13, Jerusalem says, He has made me desolate. And Jerusalem knows why. It is because of her sin. At the start of verse 14, My sins have been bound into a yoke, by his hands, they were woven together. They've been hung on my neck. The kind of yoke we're talking about here has nothing to do with eggs. This yoke is a wooden collar that sat across the neck of an ox. And the yoke either attached the ox to something like a cart or a plow that the ox had to pull, or it attached the ox to a heavy burden the ox had to carry. And here Jerusalem says, the Lord has taken my sin, all my years of defying God, all those years of giving my worship to other gods, my energy to other lovers, the Lord has taken all that sin and out of it he has made this heavy yoke of suffering and ruin that's been laid upon me. 
Actually, Jerusalem is admitting, I made this situation for myself. I supplied the material for this yoke through my own sin. It's an amazing admission. And Jerusalem then goes even further. Look down to verse 18. Jerusalem says, The Lord is righteous, yet I rebelled against his command. A better translation would be, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his command. What Jerusalem is saying is, The Lord has brought this ruin on me. He made a yoke out of my sin and he hung it round my neck. And you know what? He was right to do it. He is righteous in what he's done. For I rebelled against him. What a clear understanding of her situation. Now we've seen Jerusalem is weeping bitterly. She has tears on her face. Her eyes are overflowing with tears. She's not indifferent to her ruin. She's not okay with it. In the second half of verse 18, she says, Listen, all you peoples, look on my suffering. My young men and women have gone into exile. Jerusalem is not trying to say, I'm fine, really, by what's happened. No, she hates it. It's devastating. But she has the clarity of insight to know the Lord has done it, and he has been in the right to do it because of her sin. Not just one day of sin, not just one year of sin, but many generations of sin. It's all been brought together to form this heavy yoke around Jerusalem's neck. The yoke of ruin and devastation. A burnt out, deserted city with its people taken into exile in Babylon. And if we ask why this insight is so significant, the answer is it's significant because this is the key to rebuilding the ruins. If this city is ever going to prosper again, if she's ever going to find the comfort and the restoration that's been mentioned over and over in this poem, if that is ever going to happen, this is the key to it recognizing the righteousness of the Lord. To say that someone is righteous means they are right and just in what they do. They cannot be faulted in what they do. Now that is not the way people normally tend to view God, is it? Especially when they face suffering. When we suffer, when some kind of ruin comes into our life, our tendency is to put God on trial. We tend to call his righteousness into question in those times. Even if we wouldn't say it to others, even if we wouldn't say it to God, don't we tend to say it in our own heart, why me? Why this? And if we think about the specific kind of ruin this poem is concerned about, ruin that comes because of our sin, consequences of sin that wreak havoc in our lives and our relationships, isn't it so hard to get to the point of saying, my sins have been bound together to make this yoke. The Lord has done it, and he is righteous in doing it for I rebelled against his command. You and I do not get to that quickly or easily. We don't acknowledge it easily. All of us hate the ruin, whatever it is. Maybe we've been deceitful. Maybe we've betrayed someone's trust and it has ruined a relationship. Or maybe we've lived in a sinful pattern that eventually caught up with us. Maybe it's brought devastation to our body or our finances or our reputation or our career. We hate that kind of ruin when it comes in small or large degrees. We hate it. We weep bitterly about it. 
But we find it hard to go on and acknowledge the Lord is righteous in bringing this, for I rebelled against his command. That's hard, but it is necessary. There can be no true rebuilding without it. There can be no true comfort and rest without it. The truth we have to get to grips with is that the Lord is righteous. If you or I insist on resisting that, if we instead claim righteousness for ourselves, then we will break eventually. There will be no way back from the ruin and devastation our sin brings on us. Even if we escape ruin in the 80 or 90 years we have of this life, we will face eternal ruin after this life. Insisting on our own righteousness will break us. But acknowledging the Lord's righteousness is the first step out of brokenness and ruin. It's the first step towards comfort and rest. Now, Steve made this clarification this morning, and I need to make it again at this point. I'm not saying that everything that's difficult and painful in your life is your fault. That is not the case. Biblically, that is not the case. In fact, in the final verses of this passage, verses 21 and 22, Jerusalem mentions her enemies and their great wickedness. She asks God to deal with them and their wickedness. So the message here is not that you and I have to take responsibility for everything. The message is not that we are to see everything as our fault. Others have responsibilities as well. And there is a time to call them to account. But what this passage is telling us is that when it comes to difficulties and pain that are our fault, that have come justly because of our sin, then the sooner you and I own up to that, the sooner we can move forward. The sooner we stop blaming others for it or blaming God for it, the sooner we can move toward comfort and rest. Look here in verse 19. How Jerusalem has got to the point of seeing the Lord as her only hope in her self-inflicted ruin. She says in verse 19, I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. Other nations around Judah are no help, and the religious establishment in Jerusalem is no help. We learn from elsewhere in the Old Testament, most of the priests and elders spent their time telling the people of Jerusalem they were fine and everything was going to be fine. We read a summary of their message earlier in the book of Jeremiah. The message was, remember, we have this glorious temple in Jerusalem, so it doesn't matter how sinful and unclean our lives are. The Lord will never let this city and this temple be destroyed. Our religion and our location will keep us safe. No ruin will come to us. The Lord won't let it. That was the message from the priests and the elders. But it only showed how little they truly cared for the city. They would only say what was convenient. They would only say what they thought people wanted to hear. They didn't care enough to say difficult but true things to the city. And when trouble came, eventually, when the city came under siege from the Babylonian army, the priests and the elders scurried away to take care of themselves, searching for food to keep themselves alive. They didn't die caring for others. They died trying to save their own skin. Jerusalem has seen how useless her allies and her religious leaders are. And she knows the Lord is her only hope. Verse 20. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within. 
and in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. Outside the sword bereaves, inside there's only death. Jerusalem is distressed, she's tormented, she's disturbed. But she has taken the first step to peace and rest. She knows who to turn to. The Lord. And she knows how to turn to him. Acknowledging her rebellion against him, not just in one isolated incidence, but her rebellion in a whole outlook and pattern of life. She acknowledges it. I have been most rebellious. There's a lot more to come in this book. But in this first poem, we've been given two things to consider carefully. First of all, what kind of care do you and I have for the ruined city we live in today? Do we just focus on people's sin? Is that our default? To just see the sin and fail to see the lost men and women behind the sin? Alternatively, do we focus so much on the person who's lost that we downplay their sin and rebellion against God? Is that our tendency? This passage has called us to the kind of detailed sympathy that cares about sin and about those ruined by sin. And then second, the second thing to consider when it comes to ourselves and our own sin, greater or lesser degrees of it, are you and I stuck in a pattern of self-defense when it comes to our sin? Self-justification. Do we cling to the story that says we are the only one not to blame? That our sin and the ruin it brings is only other people's fault. Maybe even God's fault. Or are we ready to admit that the Lord is righteous? And when we rebel against his command, the ruin that comes into our lives is our fault. Let's just take a moment to be quiet and consider those things. Let's think about the ruin, first of all, that we see in other people's lives. Is there a change needed in our attitude to what we see? And then in our own lives, is there anything we need to look at again and say, maybe the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his command. Let's take a moment to be quiet and then we'll bring these things to God in prayer together. Father, we do bring these things to you. We thank you that we can bring them to you. We thank you that we can turn to you. The way is open. And we thank you that there is a way back from our rebellion. We thank you that there can be forgiveness and restoration and peace because of Jesus. We thank you that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so if we confess our sins, you, our Father, are faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we thank you that you are equally willing to do that for others too. 
We thank you that there is a way to you for those who live alongside us in this ruined city. And we pray you will help us to care for them enough to tell them the truth about their sin and also to see the broken person behind the sin. Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit in all of these things. And we ask them in the name of your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Our last two songs focus, first of all, on God's righteousness and also on his power to save us and those around us. We'll sing, ascribe greatness to the Lord, our rock, and then what can wash away my sin.
And now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.